Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hey everyone, you're listening to Chronically Chilled on 3CR. My name is Mario Pojega. I just want to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nation whose land I am recording from at the moment. Um, So today's episode features Caitlin Blythe. Caitlin is a Melbourne-based writer and performer. Her writing has been published by Junkie, The Sydney Morning Herald, Seizure, Lifted Brow and much more. In 2019, Caitlin received copyright agency's Ignite Grant and the Willis Centre's Hot Desk Fellowship to work on her chronic illness memoir, Suddenly 80. Her podcast, Just a Spoonful, where she interviews young people living with chronic illness and or disability about their work, daily lives and passions, has ranked in Australian iTunes Top 100 and featured on Triple J, ABC Radio and at the National Young Writers Festival. Let's get to the conversation. The first thing I want to do is actually um, say thank you um, because your podcast, Just a Spoonful, um, when this, when we kind of thought up this idea of having a show about chronic illness and disability, um, I thought, I'm just going to see what else is out there thinking it's maybe there's not much out there and all that kind of stuff. But I found your podcast and I think it was probably the only one I could listen to um, because it was, it, it kind of gave permission to just be okay about not being okay. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. Um, and it really inspired the show. Um, and I just wanted to share that with you um, because it's taken a really long time to get oh, you in here. Oh, so nice. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm like cringing under the weight of so much nice compliment. Thank you. <laughs> Are you still doing that podcast, by the way? I haven't seen any new episodes, but... Yeah, I, I actually recorded a new interview uh, two days ago. Awesome. I was on an unplanned hiatus for uh, two years, I think, because I um, had a personal tragedy mm. and uh i thought that i was going to be able to keep going but it's a lot of work i do it all my i you know i produce the whole thing myself so um and you do have to listen to your own voice <laughs> for a long time <laughs> when you're recording an hour or two lo- two hour long episode and mm. when you're like deep in grief or for me anyway the last thing i wanted to do was look at myself or listen to myself so yeah no, but I'm coming back now, so that's really exciting. Okay, great. Um, so we're sitting here having a conversation on Zoom. Obviously, Melbourne is in like this full-on lockdown, all that stuff. Um, what have things been like for you during this whole thing? Um, it's been hard. Mm. Uh, I think actually today, uh, that when we're recording this, is my 200th day of isolation. So this is just sort of uh, being an excessive version of my normal life, really. Um, usually someone, usually my, some of my friends might come and visit like once in a while and that kind of kept me going and they would come over and put food in my freezer and maybe do the dishes for me and clean a little bit like 
once in a while I just kind of help keep my life manageable. And I haven't, and because of my immuno, because I'm immunosuppressed, they haven't been coming around. One of my friends who is like a big support for me works at a hospital, so she can't come around. Um, and uh, yeah, like the friends who would normally be well enough to help me are also have full-time jobs. So they're still around people. And that just sort of means that they can't come in. My, my bubble is just me. I'm just in a bubble of one. Mm-hmm. So um, that's been hard, but you know, compared to how most other people seem to be in Melbourne, seem to be, um, uh, you know, reacting to it. I have, I've actually not had as bad a time because my life was already set up for me to be home all the time. You were saying you've been kind of housebound for a, a little while now and certainly before this kind of pandemic. What's it been like for like, I guess, the rest of the world to kind of, I, I'm not going to say it's a similar situation because it's absolutely not, but all of a sudden everybody's kind of housebound in some ways. I think the first, definitely the first few weeks and the first couple of months, I was just, I had what I described as free floating rage constantly. Mm. Mm. Uh, I was just, I got too angry to even talk to people I knew who were non-disabled. Even people who were disabled, but had a different kind of disability where normally they'd be able to go out and um, sort of, just be, just be out. <laughs> um, it's been really hard because people were, um, gosh, it's like, I'm like trying to, how do I put all my feelings into a few words? Um, like the first, I think the first week or two people, a lot of people thought that it was only going to be two weeks, mm. which was, I always thought was ridiculous, but that's what they truly thought. And so thinking that, they lost their minds. Like they went completely, they, they went like, Oh, I'm gonna, this is horrible. This is the worst thing I've ever been through. Just at the thought of spending two weeks in my life. And they literally were like, I'd rather go out and risk spreading COVID and catching COVID than spend two weeks in Caitlin's life. That's the, that's how it sounded to me. Um, I think it sounded like that to a lot of chronically ill people that I know. Um, It was like, we would rather die and kill people than have to experience even a sliver of what you experience just normally. I hadn't really seen anyone talking about this outside of my chronically ill online bubble until I watched this show retrograde on ABC iview and one of the characters on that show is chronically ill actually calls out her, her abled friends when they talk about going back to normal and she's she says you know this is my life right and you're going to go back to going out to bars and parties that i can't come to and we're just going to go back to not talking about it mm. and she's just seeing a chronically ill person just be angry was I was like, thank you. I, I'm so glad this got preserved in some way um, for posterity because it's been such an enraging experience. Mm. Um, do you feel like I, I certainly went through a phase and I kind of still am, I, I guess, in some ways, and I feel crappy about it. Um, I kind of lost my empathy <laughs> in some ways for people, you know. <laughs> Um, and I, I've been trying to figure yeah. out why because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm like, what's happened with me? Because I'm, I'm, I'm a bit like you. I kind of get rageful 
um, when I'm watching the news or hearing people talk and reading articles in the media and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I, th I think it goes back to like the beginning of this where people were saying, you know, we're all in this together. Um, this is an opportunity to change things for um, the way we live, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I was initially a bit hopeful about it, um, maybe naively. I was kind of a bit hopeful that, oh, maybe, you know, this is an opportunity in some ways. It's really awful, um, but it's also, it might be an opportunity. And I think my lack of empathy or my a bit of rage and stuff is that um, I can see how this is really distressing for people at the moment. Um, being in lockdown, um, they're not used to it in some ways. Um, this is a new thing for people. Um, it is a struggle, you know, all that stuff. Um, but nobody's actually made the link to we're in this situation. Imagine the people that are in this situation all the time. And the fact that we can see what they're saying. Like, mm. we are not in a different world. We're not on a different website where we yeah. can't see their tweets and we only talk to other people with chronic illness. Mm. Like, we can see their... Um, we can see their op-eds in the age. We can see their tweet threads. Yeah. And we can hear them when we're all talking in the group chat. Mm. And it is infuriating. And it is hurtful because they're all talking about what you're, what's the first thing you're going to do when it, everything goes back to normal. First of all, that kind of thinking scares me because that means people are going to rush back into quote-unquote normality faster than... Uh, is safe mm -hmm. and that means I'm gonna have to stay like uh, it's been 200 days for me it's pro I I'm I'm I have been from almost the start I'm pretty much um, resigned to the fact that I'm probably gonna have to stay on my own in this bubble for like two years mm -hmm. because it's a it's a highly contagious virus that people have not taken seriously enough for my taste from day one and they're still not Sorry, I just get so upset because people are already talking about like music festivals. It's like you don't understand. And I understand, like, the thing is, like you say, I did lose my empathy. And then I had a friend, uh, an old professor actually, from when I was at uni. She sort of said that her dad had gotten um, a condition, I can't remember now, but, but when she, she saw she so he had only recently been diagnosed with something and she saw how hard it was for him to accept that his life had permanently changed and i was like thank you because i forget what it was like the first couple of years for me when i became disabled and it took a long time like probably longer than that it was a like gradual process of realizing like of realizations and realizing like it's not going to go away in six months and sick probably for the rest of my life. And that's still something that I go into denial about on a regular basis. You know, if you have a couple of good days, you start thinking, I could do, I could, I could do anything. And then you're like, oh, here comes a flare. No, I, I can't do anything. Um, so that, that helped me really like get my empathy back a little bit, a little bit, like a very little bit. Um, I'm still very angry and spiky and resentful and I'm working on that. I'm working on it because I don't want it to become, uh, I don't want it to become my, my status quo for how I feel all the time. Um, but I also think, it, I think anger can be really valid. It's valid. And I also think that it's, it could be a really productive 
force. So I'm personally trying not to, um, I'm, I'm trying to just feel how I feel. And luckily I live alone. So I don't have to put on a brave, happy, you know, agreeable face for anyone. Mm. So that's really nice. Um, I found out yesterday that a friend of mine died and um, she was someone who had empathy for everyone. Um, and uh, her memory is a blessing. It's an inspiration. So mm. I'm trying to, um, I feel like that has been a big hard reset for me is like, um, sometimes I felt too spiky uh, next to her and uh, we had, she and I had gone through different experiences and all that. So, I mean, you, you know, different people react to different lives in different ways and that's okay. But it just reminded me to try and be more expansive um, and not always look at what I don't have, which is something that I'm always working on. Um, yeah. So sorry. It's just a bit of a rough day. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, I'm really sorry to hear about your friend. Thanks. Um, when I was, I was talking to someone the other day and um, they were kind of arguing the point to me that um, we should just open up everything and then, um, you know, look after the vulnerable. And I'm doing that in air quotes. Uh, <laughs> and, Jesus. And, and, and I just thought um, people don't get it that, by doing that, you're actually pushing people even further to the margins. Um, yes. Because this is going to become all about the economy and it already has started being more about the economy than the health, um, the health aspect of all of this. Um, and people who are disabled and chronically ill um, are not seen as important in the economy. So I, I guess my biggest fear, and this is a bit negative, but I guess my biggest fear is that it's just going to push people even more to the margins of things. Um, yeah. I'm terrified of that. I'm sure there are people who have it worse off than I do, but I'm on the margins mm. and uh, it is, yeah, it's just terrifying um, that when, whenever people are saying, I can't wait to go back to the pub or, or my neighbor has a party like happened last night. All I'm hearing is we don't care if you die. So it, it, it feels like a whole culture. I already felt like the world didn't care about me and I am a white middle-class like woman. So, I mean, you know, like I already have it like, okay. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it just feels like there that you're in, you're an acceptable cost basically. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, and I guess that, that kind of lack of care you're talking about, the, the recent Royal Commission for, into, for Disability um, kind of just confirmed that, like, nobody had actually thought of disabled people in all of this um, at all. <laughs> um, the other thing about it is, as well, was that when they kind of brought in the job seeker and job keeper and stuff, um, they didn't raise the disability support pension either in all of that. Um, no. There's some kind of clues already just in regards to, you know, how we're going to come out of this and what COVID normal and all these kind of slang words are kind of, what that actually means. Do you know what I mean? There's already some clues there about, you know, what they're seeing is yeah. important and what they're seeing is not. Yeah. I think it speaks well to your character that at the beginning of quarantine, you were hopeful that this, <laughs> that people would change and things would become better. Um, I didn't. 
I saw a lot of my disabled friends talking about that hope. I never had it. Mm. Um, so the, the upside of being really pessimistic is that you can say, I knew it. <laughs> um, so that's the only upside. <laughs> um, when things go bad, you can be like, I knew it. Um, but that's, I think I had... like, I'm, I'm usually someone, <laughs> I'm usually someone who's quite pessimistic or quite, you know, skeptical about things. Um, I don't know why I thought that. Yeah. It's, it's a really nice thought. And if it, I think it would have helped through a really difficult time mm. to think that there was a silver lining, but I think because of some of the experiences I've gone through personally in the last few years, I don't think that there is, I think, I, I think I resist the urge to silver lining things because it can be really destructive. Mm. Um, people always want to jump to a silver lining and it's that negative positive thinking that toxic positivity thing mm. um i remember when uh trump got elected and my mom said well this will be like um uh this will like pop the blister that in america because she is american she was like you know this will bring it all to the surface like mm. people will finally realize what it's like and i was like and i said hundreds of thousands of people are going to die, mom. Like, yeah. <laughs> like people are, there's already be people that are saying this. People of color have known this forever. It's just that hundreds of thousands of people, maybe more are going to have to die so that white people finally realize America is racist and misogynist, like, and mm. everything else. And, um, and I said that in 2016, this is where you, being pessimistic means you get to be like, I knew it. Um, I didn't realize that people would die in those numbers from a pandemic, but I knew that somehow it was just going to be, I was thinking more of like, you know, because of um, racially motivated attacks and ableism and like eroding the social safety net. And that has all been true, but in a way that um, I never could have imagined. <laughs> um, so I think like when people sort of try to silver lining things like that and kind of go like, um, when they're, when they're, you know, saying from the comfort of their home, uh, well, everything will be all right. Eventually you have to have to think about the, the actual human cost because who is it, who is, who is actually dying for that? And I think that people are not realizing in Australia that enough that the people who are dying are the, the, um, people in aged care, obviously we've mm. seen that. And the next, the, the, the really, the wave that's coming is disabled people dying. Yeah. Um, we can't have, we can't access the usual care. Um, we're more, a lot of us are more vulnerable to COVID. Mm. Um, just the sort of um, things like, uh, you know, everything that's affecting everyone, like, like the isolation, the loneliness and things like that um, is going to be like added to an even bigger pile of burdens for us. Mm more barriers, yeah. uh, lower pay, lower income. I could just go on and on. Yeah. <laughs> I won't. Even though we're kind of talking about, you know, wishing that people would take more care around this stuff. Um, I also want to just make it clear that I'm not supporting the over-policing of all of this stuff either. So I'm not kind of yeah. saying that's all okay and um, that yes. should, we should do that and that's, you know, all that stuff. Um, I think some of the over-policing of, you know, lockdown and these measures have been awful. Um, but that you can have, yes, you true. can say, but you can say both that, you know, it's not okay to do all the over-policing, but you can also say that, hey, we should really be more careful around this stuff. 
Um, and I You're see so right. people, it's... I see that people are joining those two or if you say that, yeah. hey, we should slow down and not come out of lockdown, then that automatically means that you support everything that, you know, that mm. put in place. They and think like, you want the ADF outside everyone's house. Yeah. It's like, no, I've, I've seen I don't that. want that. I've seen that. Yeah, same. Yeah. They, that actually, no, they're two separate things and you can have those two beliefs together, you know. Absolutely. I think, yeah, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because I talk about it on my tour a lot, but I think it's worth uh, including in the conversation that um, what happened with the uh, public housing towers was a absolute travesty and should never have happened and didn't make any sense. And, and what as a public health solution and what I've been saying from the start is that I wanted uh, what I've always wanted was better top-down governmental messaging to everyone. There's been problems like from the beginning, there, there are problems that sort of arise from us as a society not taking illness seriously and not providing a safe enough social safety net from the beginning. So there is a culture out there of like just, um, I guess the best way I can sum it up is survival of the fittest and they don't believe there's actually that much disability out there. So if they see someone who maybe doesn't look the way they think disability is supposed to look, they will test it because there's so many frauds. You know, there's like the national newspapers and state papers always drumming up um, outrage against uh, dull bludgers and frauds and people trying to get on disability pension and oh but i saw them lift something once so they can't be disabled it's like literal things that have happened so there's already so we go into a pandemic with this culture people aren't automatically going to be like oh my actions could affect everyone else i better be really careful and considerate (laughs) um i was gonna say um you just started talking about the disability support pension and um i know that you i've seen on twitter that you kind of talk about it a fair bit and i wanted to ask you and get your thoughts kind of just around what your experiences are and or were or have been um in regards to to all that sure well a good example of people being weird is um when i tweet about uh this disability support being on the disability support pension i get a lot of uh, a lot of trolls and I'll, uh, not just trolls, but people who are real people who just think that maybe I shouldn't be on it. Um, there's a lot of like, you know, I, I have a, um, uh, an accessible parking, uh, pass for my, for when I drive. Yeah. And, um, I have a lot of people watching me very, watching me intently when I use it. Um, uh, there's a lot, even when I use my wheelchair, if someone's put, I have a manual wheelchair, um, cause I can't afford a power chair. So, you know, someone has to push, um, but as soon as I'm, uh, it's like, it's just when I'm out and about, I, you know, people are watching my legs really closely because you know, you have like, it's only valid if you're paralyzed from the waist down. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, if your knees move, then that means you could walk and that means you shouldn't use a wheelchair, right? Like it's great sound logic. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I was talking about disability support pensions. So I've been on it for about eight years. Um, it has been, uh, and before that I was on what they called new start incapacitated, so that's a new start, but they acknowledge that you're too sick to work. But I still had to go to job service provider appointments once a month. Um, and I would go to these appointments, which were usually in really inaccessible buildings. And I would sit across from someone who uh, would say, do you need help writing a resume? And I would say, no, 
I have a university degree and while I was at university, I took a short course in writing resumes and I could get a job. Like I'm really privileged. I could get a job so easy if I could just do the job physically. Like I, I'm here because I'm sick and they would just be like, we can't do anything for you. See you in a month. Um, and you're like, um, I could have told you that before we did this appointment and wasted all this time. <laughs> Absolutely. Like the word incapacitated next to my payment. So obviously our prime minister now at the moment is Scott Morrison. That was um, very upsetting to me personally when he became me personally, I don't know him, but when he became prime minister, because um, when he was social services minister, he worked very hard with a few other ministers to uh, he was really championing getting people under 35 off of the disability support pension that was a very specific goal they had they wanted to see as many people under the age of 35 as possible pushed off the dsp and onto a different payment or no payment Um, and so the thing in 2015 there was a report that new start or the the unemployment the the job seeking the unemployment payment it's been through a diff- few different names, but it was called New Start back then. Uh, was like the de facto disability payment for a lot of for like a quarter of people on Centrelink, yeah. because they couldn't get the DSP, so they just ended up on New Start, which is a much lower payment and has all the mutual obligations, and you're treated like scum. Yeah. When I was on New Start, I was treated like scum, and as soon as they saw it, like as soon as it changed, and I finally got on the pension, which I was really lucky to, because I got on the pension under the last Labor government. Mm. um and it's much been they're bad (laughs) like they're to blame for a lot of things and then the liberals just took it and ran with it the coalition has just made it worse so i'm lucky that i got on before it got even harder to get on sorry to go on i was gonna say a lot of people think it's this is all just liberal government but the people who made it hard to get on to disability support pension in the first place was the gillard government because um, they changed a lot of the requirements around it, which made it really hard for people to to actually qualify for it. So this yes. is this isn't just a liberal thing; it's it's kind of you know a labor thing as well. It's it's bipartisan in some ways. Yeah, it is. And one of the reasons that I don't hail Gillard as a feminist superhero <laughs> um, is you know, and that's always a thing that happens. Seems with every prime minister is there's like always some uh, photo shoot photo opportunity of them. Um, giving a speech about disabled people and crying. Scott Morrison did it. And I was, he's been actively, explicitly and gleefully making it harder for disabled people in Australia, uh, his whole career, basically. And I think that a lot of it is, is from an ideology of what disability means to them. Mm. And it means very specific, narrow, rigid things that, um, like you can't be young. Like it doesn't make any sense to me that once you turn 35, um, your disability is valid because they always cry about, these politicians are always crying when they think about disabled children, but what do they think disabled children grow up to be? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we're disabled adults. Yeah. Um, and there's this big um, chasm between like, you know, being young and having Make-A-Wish Foundation care about you and then growing up and having to work in a um, work for like $2 an hour in, in a, uh, a, sh- a shelter. What is, sorry, what is the word? It's a sheltered workshop. We have people with intellectual disabilities, um, you know, working in a workshop 
and they they should just be glad to be doing anything be out of the house mm -hmm. so we can pay them anything and uh, you know and they're not uh, and like it, that's i think things are sort of hopefully the royal commission will change some things again not holding my breath yeah i think if i really think about it i don't think that abled allies are going to save us i think we actually just have to um organize yeah. and that's why i think like shows like yours is so important um i i think that's why i keep opening myself up to trolls and hate online by talking about this is because i i just um i always i felt so unempowered and so powerless and useless and helpless for years mm. disability rights activists and advocates are the ones who made me feel like i'm worth something mm -hmm. and my life is worth living that all that hard work that people in Australia and overseas have done um, for the disability rights movement is why I'm still alive. So I hope that even though I don't think that people that were already having a good time under the status quo will be changed much by the pandemic, I think that radicalizing the people who have had it tough this whole time is what I hope to see. The disability support pension changed my life. Like, I think too often because I'm complaining about stuff, people think that that means that I'm not grateful or that I don't acknowledge the privileges I have. Um, but pension uh, is like a universal basic income for me. It's like my own personal experience of it. And it's not enough money to live on and like, and all of that. But once I got off new start and onto the pension, it was like a huge burden lifted off my shoulders and a huge weight off because you don't have the fortnightly reporting and things like that. No more job service providers uh, appointments. And even when I would go into the central link offices, they would just treat me a little bit better, which is so shitty. And I hated that. Um, it just makes no sense. It makes no sense why you would treat one vulnerable person shitty and the next person um better because they have a purple card instead of a whatever color mm. um especially when you take into account that like f something like 40 percent of the people who are on um now job seeker are actually people who are disabled or chronically ill yes yeah. exactly exactly and it's not because they didn't think to go on the pension it's because the 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 requirements the process is like it's designed so that you give up yeah. They don't want you on it. They don't want to give you money. Uh, um, and that was me. Like I, I, I tried to go for it like, I don't know, three, four years ago and I gave up because it was too, too hard. Like it was yeah. too, too much anxiety, too much trauma, too much. Just, I just, I felt the injustice of it all. Um, and I was talking to my doctor the other week, just about bracing myself that, you know, might be giving it another go kind of in the next few months. And I'm just bracing myself for, you know, that exact same kind of experience again, um, which actually makes people sicker, do you know? Yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned the trauma. Like, I have given up on my NDIS application at least three times because it's traumatic. It's, and it's, it's so much work. So much work that is not my... Like, I shouldn't have to be um, an expert bureaucrat to access healthcare. Mm. that's not that's not what like that that's like i've become like this 
um, pretty competent, uh, like I've become like fairly com like competent, if not good at all these skills that um, are only for are only for navigating Centrelink. Um, and and it takes up so much time of like I could be writing. That's what I'm actually good at. That's yeah. what actually makes me feel like I'm um, I'm fulfilled and I'm uh, I'm myself and I'm giving uh, like co contributing something to the world. Like, but instead I'm doing paperwork and yeah. I'm on the phone. Like I'm on hold. Like, yeah, it's a full time job managing just dis my disability. I call it my full time job, and I'm like a and I'm like, uh, I have like two jobs and like my, my full-time job, my day job is being disabled. And then my like side, my side hustle is like everything else I do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, it's a system that's, that comes from the core belief that um, people are misleading it, you know. And that's why I think no shows like this are so important. There's no goodwill, but there is also this idea, like you say, there's this ideology. And for me, it's the ideology that disability is rare. When we know, you and I know it isn't, mm. but the people in power don't seem to know that or don't want to know that because it benefits them to think that there's not actually, there's not that many what they call legitimately or genuinely disabled people. Mm. And there are a lot of, um, it's hard to say in my accent, Reuters. Um, yeah. like, say it again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't want to. <laughs> I'll try. Let me try to do it with my Queensland accent, Reuters. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, um, you were saying that you were at the beginning of this, that you were um, living alone and stuff. How hard was it to find a rental? That's like, it's like its own trauma. <laughs> Um, so hard. I was actually, so I was homeless for a couple months before I found this place. Mm. Um, I was actually, actually, I mean, if you look at it, technically I was homeless for about five or six months before I found this place. Um, so it was, I, I made it all up with a combination of couch surfing and subletting. Um, so, and, and you know, a friend, if a friend was like touring a show for a month, she let me stay in her room things like that. Um, most of the places were inaccessible. So I was very ill because, you know, I'm like carrying everything I own around in a backpack, but also like having to climb stairs and um, getting this place. This is, so I actually live in a, um, a place under the NRAS scheme, which is the National Rental Affordability Scheme, which I think is a really good scheme um, because what it does is uh, and I mean, I'm I'm gonna have to uh, simplify it because that's the only way I understand it. it it's private properties, but I think the government gives like a um, subsidy to the owners, and so I get I get the place twenty percent under market rate. Um, so I'm I'm in a place that should cost about twenty percent more rent, um, and and I I get here, and and it's it's very very means tested, it's very income tested, it's very strict. Every year, I have to reapply for the place, in, like, and which in, involves proving that I'm still poor, <laughs> and things like that. Um, but the, the the thing is that social housing is made for people with low incomes, which means that they don't they're not trying to win anyone over. They don't try and make it nice. Um, so this place is built with the market in mind. 
So there's a dishwasher. The, um, the, the amenities are nice. It's painted, like it's freshly painted. Like there's just things like that. Like I don't have to live in the shittiest place and I'm not competing with like, like if I go for like the cheapest rentals on the market, which are still more, more than I can afford on the pension, but you just, you have to live somewhere. So you just don't have savings or nice things. Um, <laughs> um, those places, I'm not just competing against other people on low incomes, I'm competing against everyone because obviously everyone would like to save some money, right? Shelter is an, shelter as someone's investment portfolio should not be happening. It's, it's, it's unethical, but that's the world we live in. So um, I have, I mostly, I, I, this is my first time living alone. Um, I had a housemate when I moved in here and I think that's the only way I got this place. But then um, we just didn't gel. So she moved out and then uh, I tried subletting, but then I just sort of like, um, for my mental health, like my mental health was deteriorating. I just needed to live alone for a while. Mm. And I was like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to give myself a few months before I find another housemate. I'm just going to like give myself some space. And it turns out I freaking love it. So I don't want a housemate yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cause it's the best. Um, and it's little things like being housebound. It's really hard to live in share houses because they always want someone who's out all the time. Like that's the ideal housemate, right? Mm. Someone who's basically not there. I'm there all the time. And it's really rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. Even if I explain everything to them ahead of time, I just think most people don't realize what chronic illness and how being housebound really looks like. Yeah. Um, and there's always judgment. Like there's that thing if they're like, oh, you stay in bed all day again. And I'm like, I don't think you understand that um, this is not like a choice I'm making. I'm yeah. not like, I'm not like I could get a job, but instead I'm going to stay in bed all day and feel terrible. Yeah. Um, it comes back to those really unhealthy ideas around productivity and you should always be striving to something and all that stuff. And people just can't get yes. around the fact that some people actually can't live up to those ideas that they've got you know ingrained into them which is what society does to us i think absolutely and i actually just read kylie maslin's uh new book chronic illness memoir called show me where it hurts and in it she paints this really vivid picture of when she was living with all these undiagnosed conditions which included just like debilitating pain and she was self-medicating because like the medical system had let her down mm. like like the society was letting her down right so she's self-medicating so she, i think like it's important to realize like when you see someone who is like unwashed clearly hasn't showered in days maybe their clothes are dirty and they are but and you see them and they're buying a bottle of tequila and then they're just like shuffling out and going home and you're thinking you might be thinking all these judgmental things to yourself maybe um but like they could be living with undiagnosed endometriosis and bipolar two disorder, mm -hmm. and they're just trying to make it work. And if they like to work their job, it means they don't have any energy left for a laundry for a showering. Um, and they can't, because of the way that, because of all the um, stigmas and ideologies that we've just been talking about uh, and the barriers, they can't access proper medication. And the only thing that makes them feel better is like the numbing agent. Like <laughs> that's probably not the right wording, but like 
alcohol or like um, hoarding coding or um, weed to like take some of the edge off. And I think that um, it's important like to remember that people are doing their best with what they're given. And like, I was, I really thought it was brave of Kylie to put her own life under the microscope to encourage people to have more empathy. Um, is there anything that you, we missed or that you want to just add um, just to finish up here? Well, I just think an interesting fact is that Melbourne does have a thing of a, an issue with empty investment properties. So there are like, it's estimated that there are around six, I think it's 60,000 empty residential properties that are empty because it's more profitable for investors to just leave it empty than to fill it with a person. Mm. So if you look at how many homeless people we have just in Melbourne, just in Melbourne, not in all of Victoria, but like just in Melbourne, they could each have, have one of those, they could each be housed and also have an empty place on either side of them so that they have a buffer from COVID. But instead we're letting people suffer. And that's a choice. Like everything that's happening like is a choice on a governmental level, but also on a cultural level. That was Melbourne-based writer and performer, Caitlin Blythe. Um, You can catch this episode and all of our episodes via podcasts on the 3CR website, on iTunes, and also now on Spotify as well. I just want to thank Caitlin for coming onto the show and also thank you for listening. See you next time. The Boldness, campaigning for human rights for people with disabilities. Join us every third Wednesday of the month at 6pm on 3CR.